Well, good morning and welcome back to our series, Growing in Christ. We've been talking these past few weeks, really months, I suppose, at this point, about how God wants us to live as those who believe in him and are followers of Christ. It seemed a natural place for us to go after the book of Acts where we talked about the birth of the church. I think Jonathan did an excellent job last week walking us through a biblical picture of what the family structure is within the scriptures. Men, we set the tone for our homes when we love our wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The Living Bible puts that last verse this way. This is how husbands should treat their wives, loving them as part of themselves. For since a man and his wife are now one, a man is really doing himself a favor. That cracks me up every time I read it. And loving himself when he loves his wife. You've heard the expression, happy wife, happy life? This may be where that comes from. It sounds like a good, good fit for me. Now, when I last spoke, we looked at God's expectation for his followers to put God first. Not just on Sundays or when we feel like it, but in everything we do. In our finances, in our homes, in our relationships, in our marriages and families. And in order to do that, we have to follow the Great Commission. It's in three parts. Let's see if we can identify those three parts this morning. So who knows the first part? I'll start you off just in case. Therefore, go and do what? Make what? Disciples. Right. Go and make disciples of all nations. And then what are we supposed to do with those disciples? Baptize, Baptize them. Right. we got to get them wet. More than wet because it speaks of what just happened in their life. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then there's that third part that I sometimes think is the forgotten part. What do we do with them then? Teach them. I heard it out here. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And we can't do that if we don't know what the Bible says. The only way that we can put God first is by knowing what he wants us to do and choosing. Let me say that again. Choosing. One more time. Choosing to do that regardless of how we feel or how hard it may be or what it may cost us. So before we get into the meat of the topic for today, let me remind you, if you missed a message, any message, and you want to, uh, you want to catch up, you want to see that message, uh, listen to that message again, you can do so by going to ffcsermon or sermons.org, where you can listen online or via podcast. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the live tab, and re-watch a message on either Facebook or YouTube. So let's pray this morning and see what God has for us. Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you that you are clear in your word what you want and that you want us to follow you with our whole hearts, to be conformed each day more and more to the image of your Son. Father, as we open your word this morning, may it speak to us clearly. May we hear from you. And Father, may we choose to put those things into practice. 
We ask these things and thank you for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start off with a note of honesty. I'm walking what I feel to be a very fine line this morning. I know that there are a number of you who have been through a divorce. You know the pain and you know the hurt that's involved in that process. And I know a number of you that have been through that divorce have never really sensed God's forgiveness in your life yet. And I want you to sense that forgiveness as we talk today. I want you to sense the compassion that God has for us. But I also know that there are a number of you who are close to a divorce. And without seeing clearly what God has to say about it, you're going to do it. Those who have been through a divorce would be glad to stand up and say, don't do that. You don't know the pain that's involved because of what they've been through. But you're just that close. And I want you to, uh, to sense the conviction from God's word today. What he has to say about it is clear. And he wants you to make the right choice. So how can I talk to both groups at the same time? How can I say this is what God has to say without heaping more guilt on, on you already than you've already maybe heaped on yourselves? On the other hand, how can I say this is how forgiving God can be without some of you thinking, well, that means I can, I can just I have a get-out-of-jail-free card. I can do whatever I want. Well, I can tell you I'm not smart enough to walk that line. But God's Word has a way of speaking to us to address and meet our need. So we're going to talk today about his word and, and, and about the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and we'll see what God's word has to say as it speaks to our needs. Now, some of you who have been through a, a divorce really need to know, was it a sin or not? Was it right? Was it wrong? I want to know. You need to know what the Bible has to say about it. You need to know, can I be forgiven? And in a word, yes. Some of you are considering a divorce. You need to know, is this the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Do I have biblical grounds? What does the Bible actually say about this situation? Actually, it has a lot to say. We're going to talk about something that we've all been touched by. Divorce is a real part of our society. It's part of the fabric of everything that we do. We're inundated by a culture of divorce. Now, we could talk about the statistics of pain. We could have lots of testimonies. I could ramble on and on about my convictions, but that's not what we need. What we need is to know what God has to say about this subject. So today we're going to look. We're going to look at passages in context. We're going to look at some historical background, a little bit of word study. Because God's word has the ability to make a difference, to help us make the right choice. Speaking for myself, when I can find scriptures about the thing that I'm facing, it helps me. It strengthens me to make the right choice. I may do it whining and complaining all the way, but at least I know what God wants me to do. So we're going to look today at four major passages of scripture on divorce and remarriage. But before we do, we need to understand something about marriage, or we'll never understand why God takes such a narrow view of divorce. God is talking to Israel in the book of Malachi, through Malachi, about their unfaithfulness to their spouses and to him. Over and over again, they have cheated on God, been unfaithful, gone after other gods, gone after other wives. And he says to them in Malachi, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. 
You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And there it is in one word, covenant. God defines marriage for us as a covenant. It is not just a haphazard ceremony where two people stand before a preacher, say I do, and then go on a honeymoon. Unless you understand that marriage is designed by God and ultimately for God's purpose, you'll always view it on a human level. One of the reasons that we are so quick to discount marriage is that we have kept it earthly. We have forgotten that we are an illustration of the very nature and purpose of God. I like to think of it this way. God likes to finger paint. You remember finger painting when you were in kindergarten and elementary school? I love to finger paint. God likes to finger paint with all of his creation. And he recreates himself in everything that he does. And what he doesn't want is some other kid to come over and mess up his finger paint. Oh, let's put a sun here. Let's put a flower. It's God's picture. We represent, we paint a picture of who God is, his very nature, and his purpose. The purpose of covenants in the Bible were always to expand his kingdom. God operates by rule of his covenant. You see, a covenant is a spiritually binding relationship between God and his people. And covenants are different than contracts. You can fulfill the terms of a contract without ever having a relationship with another person. But covenants always include a relationship as central to the agreement. We'll come back to this passage in Malachi in a minute. So let's begin. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 is the passage in the Old Testament we need to look at because in the New Testament, they looked back to this passage as sort of their authority. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, the word literally is unclean, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to remarry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of God, uh, the land your God is giving you as an inheritance. So what does this say? Well, first it answers the question, is divorce ever permitted in the Bible? Yes. Here we have back in Deuteronomy, the Bible talking about divorce. Divorce is permitted in Deuteronomy in the case of uncleanness. Literally, that's what the word means, some indecency. What does that mean? Well, you can guess for them it probably meant just about anything they could think of. I want you to see the Old Testament, what the Old Testament says, and how it builds toward the New Testament scriptures. It's also very interesting to note in this passage that divorce doesn't become final until a remarriage occurs. Up until she marries a second husband, this goes both ways, husbands and wives, she would be free to remarry her first husband. Restoration could occur, but once that happens, it is final. It's more relational than it is uh, legal. So what does it mean, some indecency? When is it final? How does it work? Well, in order to understand that, we have to go a little further into the Old Testament, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi. Malachi 2, 
13 to 16. Back to the passage we just looked at. And this passage answers the question, what does God think of divorce? We've just read that it may be permitted under certain circumstances, but what does God think of it? Back in Malachi, we read these verses. Let's read them again. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offering or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And here's the text we haven't read yet. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord the God of Israel, because the man who divorces his wife covers his garments with violence, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Why does God hate divorce? Because faith and faithfulness are important to him. It says in this passage that it's a breaking of faith. It's a tearing apart, a ripping. It's a violent act. And this is revealed in three ways. It's a breaking of faith between us and God. There's probably not a person in this room who has been through a divorce, who couldn't talk about the spiritual struggles that they've gone through. Even if their divorce was for all the right biblical reasons, it's still an incredible spiritual struggle, and God hates that. It's a breaking of faith between husband and wife, and God hates that. He hates the hurt and the pain. It even talks about children in this passage, godly offspring. It's a breaking of faith between parents and children. Why does God hate? Divorce because it hurts his children. Those of you who are parents, if someone hurts your child, what's your attitude going to be toward that person? You're going to get pretty ticked off. Never come between a mother bear and her cub. Now, I might allow you to hurt me, but if you mess with my children, it's going to be on. They're not the only ones who are going to wind up hurt when we're done at the end of the day. Don't mess with my kids. God hates divorce because it hurts his children. Between 1960 and 1980, in America, the divorce rate surged by 250%. The best estimate in 2021 is that 50% of all first marriages will end in divorce, compared to only 16% in 1960. Upwards of 60% of second marriages won't make it. God hates that because he sees the hurt and pain that it brings to his children. And there are all kinds of hurt. It brings financial hurt. The standard of living for women dropped by 30% after a divorce. There's even health consequences. The National Institute of Health discovered that being a divorced person and a non-smoker is only slightly less dangerous than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and staying married. Anybody got a light? <laughs> I mean, that's quite a statistic. God hates divorce because it hurts his children. One million children each year have to face divorce in the United States, and God hates that. Three-fifths of all divorces involve minor children. The best estimate that is more than half, about 59%, of children of baby boomer parents will spend or have spent at least a year living with only one parent. One of the most startling of all statistics to me is that three of five of those children felt that it was their fault, that their parents didn't like them and rejected them. God hates divorce because it hurts his children. When you and I look at the divorce, the divorce culture we're in, it's easy to become 
so inundated that we forget the pain that it brings to society, the pain that it brings to a friend who's going through it, the pain that it brings to our own children who are going through that. Now, when God says that he hates divorce, and yet earlier in the Bible he permits it, how do you put those two things together? God permits something that he absolutely hates. What am I left with after I've been through a divorce? Absolute guilt. That's what's left. Some of you may be feeling that way right now. But what did Jesus have to say himself? Jesus talked about divorce on the Sermon on the Mount and later in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders of the day. And they come to Jesus with a question. The Pharisees come to test him and they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? For any and every reason? Wow, what a question. Whatever the, whenever the Pharisees ask the question, it's always a good idea to ask, why did they ask that question? He sat down, Jesus, and he talked to these Pharisees who said, is it permissible for any reason? Burn the toast, forget to make the bed, leave the door unlocked. Forget to fill the car up with gas, whatever it may be. Back in Jesus' day, there were two main schools of thought about divorce. From the Halil school and the Shammai school. I wanted to say uh, Shlemiel and Shlamazel when I first read that, but that's Laverne and Shirley. But in the Halil school, it's the Halil school and the Shammai school that you need to know about. And it's important to understand that because one of them said, the Halil school, the liberal school, that you can divorce for any reason whatsoever. The Shammai school said that you can only divorce for sexual immorality. I have a quote from the teaching of Jesus' day. The school of Shammai said, A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found something unchastely in her. The school of Halil said he may divorce her even if she spoils a dish for him. You see the difference? I mean, what a difference. From unfaithfulness and adultery to you burnt a toast. You messed up dinner. One rabbi actually said, even if he found another fairer than she, it shall be as if she found no favor in his eyes. If he sees a cuter girl, he can divorce his first wife because clearly she did something wrong. Can you believe that? She's prettier. That's cause enough for divorce. Knowing human nature, which of these schools do you think was most popular in Jesus' day? The Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask this question because they felt that if he said, yes, divorce for any reason, they could say that he was denying the Old Testament scriptures. That's not what the law really means. That's not what Moses was saying. He, and, and if he said, no, the law of Moses says you may not, then he would become less popular with the people. They wanted to put Jesus into a trap. But Jesus is way too smart for that. They come and they ask him the question, is divorce lawful? And Jesus answers, wrong question. Wrong question. And it's the wrong question for us as believers too. Is it lawful? Jesus went back to the principle of marriage rather than back to the law of Deuteronomy. They come and say, is it lawful? And Jesus says in verse 4 of Matthew 19, haven't you read, he replied, That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. These are the teachers of the law. They're supposed to know the law better than anyone. They come and say, Jesus, what's this thing about divorce? Any reason whatsoever? Jesus says, haven't you read what's on the first page of the book of Genesis? He's saying this is kindergarten stuff. Go back to the first and second page and see see what's right there. 
Here's the principle. One man, one woman for life. Now, I must admit, I get my wife to check my PowerPoint every week. And before she checked it, I had one man, one woman for life. <laughs> and she looked at it and said, oh, that'll never work. That's not right. <laughs> so we had to make that agree. One man, one woman for life. Go back to the principle, he says to them. And it's that principle that's uh, in the book of, uh, and it's the principle that, if that's the principle, then why in the book of Deuteronomy did Moses command that a man must give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce. Now notice, he does a quick change, and it's very important to see this. They said command. Jesus said permitted. He wouldn't let them get away with saying that he commanded them that they must divorce in that case. Moses permitted you to divorce for one reason. God's principle never changed. God's principle is one man, one woman for life. The Bible says he permitted divorce because of their hard hearts, because they were stubborn, because they were selfish, because they wanted their own way. Jesus was saying this, God gave you an inch, but you want to take a mile. You just want to say, let's do it for any reason. God gave you an emergency escape hatch for the most difficult of circumstances, and you want to turn that into an easy exit. God permitted it for hard hearts. And Jesus is saying, realize it's for the most difficult circumstances. And forgiveness is always an option. And in most cases, maybe the best option. And Jesus goes on to talk with them about this. And he tells us very clearly what he thinks about divorce. In verse 9 he says, I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Do you see that there in the text? I don't have to teach much this morning. Jesus is doing the teaching. It's right there in black and white. And he is saying, this is how it is. God never commands a divorce, but he does permit divorce for one reason, unfaithfulness. And for another reason that we're going to look at in a minute in 1 Corinthians. Now some of you might be thinking... That's not the reason I got divorced. You may be honestly thinking in your hearts, maybe for the first time, maybe I did it for selfish reasons. You're admitting what Jesus says is true. You're actually owning that divorce might have been a mistake, may not have been the right choice to make, may have even been sin. But let's step back a minute and realize that everyone in this room is a sinner. We all fall short of the glory of God. And one of the things that we do for some unfortunate reason is we put the sin of divorce in this separate category and we assign a stigma to it so that people don't even want to admit that because they think they'll be ostracized. That God can't use me. I can't be forgiven. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. One of the most refreshing things that we can do in life is to admit that something we've been trying maybe all of our lives to justify for ourselves is actually something in our heart that we need to confess. And Jesus says if we confess our sins, or John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, not from some unrighteousness, not from just a few things, but from all unrighteousness. Jesus said that there were certain circumstances where divorce could happen. He didn't say it must happen. He said it is possible that it might happen. So the question that comes out of that for many people is, is remarriage ever possible? Well, if Jesus said it's okay to divorce, is he saying that it's okay to remarry? Or do I just get divorced and have to stay unmarried the rest of my life? 
The answer to that from the teaching of the scriptures is yes. Remarriage is permissible. And by that word permissible, I mean that there is biblically right reasons that allow for it to happen. Let me show you the teaching that the church has had from the very beginning about this. There have been four of them. I want you to understand what Christianity has been teaching on the subject for over 2,000 years. And the four views are this. No divorce, no remarriage. Divorce, but no remarriage. Divorce and remarriage for adultery or desertion. And divorce and remarriage under a variety of circumstances. The one I believe and am teaching today is that third one. Divorce and remarriage for adultery and desertion. But I want to be honest, I can see where the second view is possible for some to believe. I don't believe that myself, but I can see where there might be wiggle room, wiggle room for that. The first one I don't see is possible to teach. After all, we just read a verse that Jesus said where he said it is permitted. And the last one, for any reason, I can't justify that from the scriptures either. And by the way, the scriptures we're looking at this morning are it on the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the scriptures. And if you and I want to be faithful to God's word and what is right for our lives, this is the teaching that God gives us. By the way, all of these things agree on one thing. God's best is one man, one woman for life. 1 Corinthians 7 has some more light to give us. Jesus says, if I choose to divorce for selfish reasons, if I choose to divorce because of the stubbornness and the hardness of my heart, Jesus says that's sin. But what if someone chooses to divorce me? It's not my choice. What if the papers are filed on me? What happens in that circumstance? Is, is that other person causing me to sin in that situation? And does that other person's sin mean that I can never be remarried? If all we had was this verse in Matthew 19, there'd be a lot of questions about it. But there are other verses here in 1 Corinthians that give us some very clear answers to the most common questions about divorce and remarriage. From 1 Corinthians 7, we read this. What if a man, or this is a question, what if a man is married to an unbeliever? I'm a believer in Christ. I want to follow Christ. But they have a different faith. In 1 Corinthians 7, it says that we should be married in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 6, it says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Does that mean that God wants me to leave my unbelieving spouse? If you're trying to be faithful to the Lord, that might be an honest question. But God gives an honest answer. And this is key to this passage. He talks first to married people. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. He says, then he says to the married... I give this command, a, my, a wife must not separate from her husband. If she does, if she chooses to sin, if she makes that choice to sin, she must remain unmarried else, or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband may not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So there's your answer. The answer is it makes no difference whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. God's standing, God's great plan for marriage is still the same. One man, one woman for life. Well, what if my unbelieving husband or wife leaves me? Paul goes on in verse 15. He says, if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. 
People have argued about what this verse means. I think it means you're not bound. I think it means that you have the freedom to remarry biblically, that it's okay. In that circumstance, God is giving you permission. If you're a believer and the unbelief relieves, you don't have to chase them all over the country trying to get them to remarry you. And so that leaves one more possibility. If you're a believer and your believing spouse leaves you, what do you do in that circumstance? That's a tough one. One that's going to require a lot of prayer as to what God wants you to do in that circumstance. And it may take a while to get that answer. It's one of those circumstances that you have to take on a case-by-case basis. I found people who want to pretend that their believing spouse was really an unbeliever so they can make it fit the Scriptures. I don't think God wants us to engage in those kind of mental gymnastics. What he wants is one man, one woman for life. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. We talked earlier about the first cause for divorce being adultery. The second cause that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians is abandonment. And by the way, when Paul says in this passage, this word is from me, this word is from the Lord, he's not not saying that uh, his words don't count and that they're not authoritative. What he's saying is, I can quote Jesus directly on this first one. This second one, I don't have a direct quote for. But Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. So whether it's Paul writing or Jesus speaking, those words carry the same weight and authority in the Scriptures. So let me ask a few questions I think are key to our discussion. Question, what can I do to help prevent divorce? We've talked about when you can and when you can't. What about preventing it? Two practical ideas from God's Word. Number one, focus less on myself. That's easy for you to say. You've never been through divorce. Well, you're absolutely right, I haven't. I haven't been through that pain and that struggle. I want to say this understanding the pain of divorce that many of you have been through. The circumstances that many of you have been through and how awful and horrible those have been. And I'm not trying to diminish that pain by that statement or the one that I'm about to make. But it's still true that the number one reason for divorce is selfishness. James tells us in his letter, he says, Why do you fight and argue? With each other. Isn't it because you are full of selfish desires that fight to control your body? You want something you don't have, and you will do anything to get it. You will even kill, but you still cannot get what you want, and you won't get it by fighting and arguing. You should pray for it. Paul gives us a better way. In his letter to the Philippian church, the church in Philippi, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. What if we could really put those two verses into practice? You and I, as believers in Christ, have the power through the Holy Spirit to apply those verses. Those who don't know Christ, don't. Some of you were divorced before you ever became a Christian. You didn't know any better. Many of you didn't have the power then to apply that verse. Now that you do, as a believer in Jesus Christ, don't fail to miss the significance of saying, God, will you help me to be unselfish in this situation? In an argument when the heat starts to rise and it goes on for day and day, doesn't doesn't selfishness start to kick in? It certainly does for me. I tend to just think about myself and how I can win the argument the next time that it starts back up again. And of course, women... 
They have incredible memories. Well, 20 years ago, you said, whether it relates to the argument you're having or not, and I, I mean, out comes the audio tape, the videotape, not to mention the aerial photography. I can't remember what I did five minutes ago, much less 20 years ago. It happens to all of us. So we have to say, God, help us, help me focus less on myself. Number two, you got to focus more on God. Here's a startling fact. Jesus' parents were almost divorced. Maybe you've read that, but you never thought about it. Jesus' parents were almost divorced. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary was pregnant, and Joseph didn't know how, and he wanted to divorce her quietly. You can feel the pain and the struggle in Joseph then. He must have really loved her to want to protect her, even in that process when he was trying to be faithful to the law. Back then, when you were engaged, before married, before you even came together in marriage, if you broke an engagement, it was still considered a divorce. That engagement was a commitment. It would have been a divorce in Jesus' own family. There would have been a divorce in Jesus' family if God had not stepped in. But God did, and he sent an angel. He met with Joseph and gave him a message that changed their lives. That's true for some of you. There's going to be a divorce if God doesn't step in, if he doesn't intervene. Focus on God. Sometimes in marriage, it seems as though if it's a battle between two, a two-way battle. Instead, try making it a relationship triangle that includes God. Not just husband and wife, but husband, wife, and God. Because when we involve God in our relationship, when each of us independently grow closer to God, we grow closer to each other. Whatever the issue, finances, communication, the kids, sex, make it a relationship triangle where God is involved in what's happening in your marriage. Question, why would God want two people to stay together if they hate each other? Why would God want that? It doesn't make any sense. First of all, realize that this dislike, this hate, is coming from our own hearts. If the other person is a brother and sister in Christ, here is what John has to say. He says, but anyone who hates a brother or sister is in darkness and walks around in darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. The Bible says that whether it's someone in the church or whether or not it's my spouse, if I say I hate that person, I'd better look at my own heart because I'm the one who's in darkness. One psychologist has calculated that romantic love lasts no more than three to five years, especially when those two people live under the same roof. That's when the real struggle begins. Commitment rather than love holds marriage together during those tough times. Question, if God forgives divorce like he forgives all sin, can I get a divorce and then ask God to forgive that sin? Well, that's an honest question. Maybe a question you have thought of. Let me picture for you what you're saying when you say that. It's like saying, God, can I cut off my right arm and you teach me to use my left arm for the rest of my life? You could ask God to do that, but you'd be living life with a great pain 
and at a great loss. And that hurt would always continue and be there, that loss. The very question assumes that there is no pain in sin. There is incredible pain in sin. Will God forgive you if you ask him? Absolutely, he will. Yet when you and I are faced with a difficult circumstance, I realize in a relationship that don't work, really all we want to do is find a way to get out from under that pain. When it comes to divorce, you're not escaping pain. You're choosing your pain. You're choosing whether you want to go through, in, in, uh, in, in relative terms, the short-term pain of trying to make a relationship work and getting it back on track, or the long-term pain of divorce. That pain doesn't end. On the other hand, sometimes obedience is tough at first, but the gratification that comes later is incredible. It can be a lifetime of gratification. A study of divorced couples with preschool children shows that just one year after divorce, 60% of the men and 73% of the women said, I wished we'd tried harder. We made a mistake. Does that mean if I'm being abused by someone, I can't leave them? Is that what the Bible is saying? When did I or God ever say that? No. You got to get up and go. That's what the Bible says. I want to be absolutely clear. Are you listening? If you are being physically abused or mentally abused or emotionally abused by anyone in a marriage relationship, you need to get to a safe place. You need to do it now. You need to do it today if possible. Not only does God hate divorce, he hates violence. And violence in a marriage, in my opinion, is the worst of all. God doesn't ask us to face the danger of death. That's just ridiculous. And those who try to take God's word that far are putting into the Bible something that is not there. Will your marriage end a divorce? Maybe. Maybe not. You might be separated for a very long time in those circumstances. But change and healing are always possible with God. Jesus lived in a day when things weren't working very well when it came to marriage. In a Jewish home, you could divorce somebody simply because there was too much salt in the food. In a Greek home, women were totally secluded. Fathers were often dictators over their children. Prostitution was an acceptable part of the culture for men. In a Roman house, divorce had become an epidemic. Women often dated themselves by how many husbands they'd had. Ten husbands, eight husbands in five years. One Roman record has a 23rd husband marrying a 21st wife. I don't know how you'd even keep track of that. 23 times marrying a 21st time. My goodness. Jesus came into that world and he changed it. He changed history. We look at our world today and we see the struggles that we are defacing in a divorce culture we're in. Jesus can do it again. He can change it. Let me say a word to the family members, those who, those who identify as believing in Jesus and as his followers. It's not going to begin with those who don't know Christ. It's going to begin with those who do know Christ, you and I, who are in Christ. And as we've looked together straightforwardly at what God's word has to say about this, it's my deepest prayer that God will take his word and apply it to your particular situation. I don't know what your situation is. But I do know this book, and I've tried to resent what I see here in black and white in a faithful way. Now, as a believer in Christ, 
You have the responsibility to take what is in this book and apply it to your situation. Yes, that may be difficult, but God's grace abounds more and more. It's not what I think about you that's important. It's not what you think about you that's important. It's what God thinks that is important. Are you ready to choose? There's our word again. To follow what God's word has to say and to be faithful to doing that. And it's my prayer that it can change your history because of what we discussed today. Stand with me for a benediction and we'll be done. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Faith Fellowship, know that God is for you and not against you. Have a good day in Jesus.